أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم صلى الله وسلم عليك يا سيدي ويا مولاي يا رسول الله صلى الله وسلم عليك يا سيدي ويا مولاي يا أبا عبد الله يا غريب يا مظلوم كربلاء يا ليتنا كنا معكم سادتي فنفوز فوزا عظيما قال الله تعالى في محكم كتابه الكريم أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم حتى إذا جاء أحدهم الموت قال رب ارجعون قال رب ارجعون لعلي أعمل صالحا فيما تركت كلا كلا إنها كلمة هو قائلها ومن ورائهم برزخ إلى يوم يبعثون God states in the Holy Quran, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. When death comes to one of them, he says, My Lord, return me, that I may work righteousness with regard to that which I left behind. No, indeed, these are words that he speaks. And behind them is a barrier until the day they are resurrected. Amanna billah, sadaqallahu al-aliyyun azim. Let us begin by enlivening our hearts and minds in our gathering with the salutations upon the Holy Prophet and his purified progeny. Sallu ala Muhammadin wa ali Muhammad. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad. As human beings, it is quite astonishing and amazing that we disagree with one another on basically everything. There is not a single thing, almost not a single thing, that we agree upon. We disagree when it comes to our personal preferences, our tastes in food, some people, they enjoy potatoes. Their spouses do not, like mine. When it comes to other issues, we have differences when it comes to our perceptions of beauty. One person looks 
at artwork, a painting, and says, this is the most beautiful thing I've seen in my life. Another person says, my son can draw better than this. When it comes to morality, what is moral, what is ethical, we disagree with one another, what is good, what is bad. We have various political preferences. Some people lean left, other people lean right. Even when it comes to our religious beliefs, we vary. The people of the world do not all agree on religious beliefs. We disagree. We believe in different things. We act in different ways. Even when it comes to, from an Islamic perspective, the greatest being or the greatest thing in existence, and that is God, there is disagreement. Some people believe in God. Other people don't. The way that I believe in God, my understanding of God could be very different than my neighbor's understanding of God. So we find that as human beings, we disagree all over almost everything when it comes to the very small all the way to the very big. But despite all of our various disagreements, there is one thing that all of us agree upon, and that is the inevitability of death. No two people disagree. We all agree that death is a reality, and that death is inevitable. The Quran tells us, كُلُّ نَفْسٍ دَائِقَةُ الْمَوْتِ كُلُّ نَفْسٍ ذَائِقَةُ الْمَوْتِ Every soul shall taste death. Why does God use this term? Why does God say that every soul shall taste death? Because taste is one of the strongest senses that we have. As soon as you put something in your mouth, you immediately taste it. It's immediate. And you taste it sometimes with your whole being. I've seen sometimes when you consume, you eat something that you desire, something that is delicious, you feel like your whole body is feeling the taste of that food. So God says, every soul shall taste death. In another verse, God says, قُلْ إِنَّ الْمَوْتَ الَّذِي تَفِرُّونَ مِنْهُ فَإِنَّهُ مُلَاقِيكُمْ In Surah Al-Jumu'ah. Tell them, O Messenger, that death which you are all running away from, we all run away from death, right? God says, tell them that this death that you all run away from, it's following after you, it's chasing after you. And it's gaining speed. Maybe when we're young, we're really fast. We can chase away very quickly. But soon enough, death catches up. It's running after us. Amir al-Mu'mineen says, Nafasul mar'i khutahu ila It's really interesting the way that Imam Ali talks about death. In order to survive, we have to breathe, right? Can't survive without breathing. You inhale and you exhale. It is necessary for us to survive. 
Imam Ali says these breaths that are necessary for us to survive, every single one of them is a step closer to death. Every breath that we take, it's a step closer to the inevitable. And the Quran tells us that there is absolutely no delay when it comes to death. In everything there is delay. You attend a program, they tell you for example it starts at 7.30, starts at 8 o'clock. You go to a wedding, they tell you 8 o'clock, it starts at 9.30, right? You're on your way to work or to your home or to your friend's house and there's a delay, there's a traffic, there's an accident. There's always delays, but the Quran says when it comes to death, there is absolutely no delay. God says, فَإِذَا جَاءَ أَجَلُهُمْ لَا يَسْتَأْخِرُونَ سَاعَةً وَلَا يَسْتَقْدِمُونَ When the time, the fate, ajal, ajal is fate. When their fate comes, لَا يَسْتَأْخِرُونَ سَاعَةً They are not delayed, nor are they what? nor does it advance. It doesn't come early, nor does it come late. It comes exactly on time. There's a story from the time of Prophet Sulaiman Prophet Sulaiman, we know he was a prophet, but he was also a king, and he had a vast kingdom. And part of his job was that he was a judge. He would sit in court, and he would listen to people's cases and he would judge between them in their disputes. So Prophet Sulaiman one day was sitting in court and he was listening to a dispute. And there were members from the public sitting in the court as well. They were listening to this dispute. And in particular, there was a man who was sitting on the side. And this man, as he was sitting, he noticed that from the entrance, a figure appeared, a strange figure appeared, standing at the entrance of the courtroom. And this figure began to stare directly at him. He started to look at him. He stared at him with a piercing look. So the man felt a little comfortable from the appearance of this figure. Why is he staring at me? Why is he looking at me? The figure then turned around and left. The court session was over. The man approached Prophet Sulaiman He told him, Ya Nabi Allah, O Prophet of God, while I was sitting in your court session, I noticed that a figure entered, stood at the entrance and he was looking directly at me. He didn't look at anyone else. He just looked at me and he was staring at me. So can you tell me what was going on? Sulaiman looked at the man, told him, yes. That was the angel of death. The angel of death came in. So he said, that was the angel of death? He said, yes. He said, why was he looking at me? What does he have to do with me? Sulaiman told him, maybe he has some business with you. So the man told him, Ya Nabi Allah, please, I ask you for a favor. I want you to pray to God right now 
to remove me from this place. Let him send me somewhere far, far away. Let him send me far away. Let him send me all the way to India. Prophet Sulaiman was where? He was in Jerusalem. So it's a long distance. It's a long flight from Jerusalem to India. So Prophet Sulaiman raised his hands to the sky. He said, my Lord, send this man to India. And miraculously, the man left. A few days later, the tradition says that the angel of death visited Sulaiman again. Sulaiman, he asked him, told him, oh angel of death, let me ask you about something. A few days ago, during my court session, you appeared and you were staring at a man. So tell me what was going on. You stared for a little bit, then you turned around and you left. Explain to me what was going on. The angel of death, he told him, Ya Nabi Allah, I was commanded to take the soul of so-and-so. It was his time of death, his name. And so I came and I noticed that this figure was sitting in your court, his name. You know, he has his ID, how he looks, his name, his characteristics. He's sitting in your court. But my instructions were to take his life in India. But I noticed that he was sitting in your court. So I left. You know, he wanted to verify his sort of navigation, the GPS, right? The GPS says India, not Jerusalem. So he says, I left and I went to India. And there surely I found the man. And so I took his life there. The Quran says there is absolutely no delay. When the time comes, the time comes. Thus, death is inevitable. And what's more is that death is one of our greatest fears. We all fear death probably one of the greatest fears that we have. I remember reading a survey once about people's fears, what they are afraid of. And we fear many things. Some people fear snakes. Some people fear bees. Some people fear mice. Some people fear other things. Across the board, most people who were interviewed in this study said, that they feared death. There was only one thing actually that made the top of the list before death, and that is public speaking. Public speaking, people said we fear public speaking more than death. Why? Because when you're speaking publicly, everyone is looking at you, everyone is hearing you, everyone is noticing your every movement. Everything you say, everything you do is being watched at very closely by everyone. Except those who are asleep, of course. Those who are asleep in the majlis don't see you. But besides that, everyone fears death. We all fear death. It induces anxiety in us when we think about death. But why? Why do we fear death? Why does it make us so anxious when we start to think about it and when we talk about it? Because death from a 
non-believing perspective, if you're a non-believer, you don't believe in the hereafter, in life after death, then death means what? Death means the absolute end. After that, there is total annihilation. If you don't believe in a life after death, then death means your abs the absolute end of your existence. There's nothing beyond it. And so this induces anxiety. And it causes people to want to maximize their life. Right? If you don't believe in a hereafter, and this is it, it's just this life, then you want to take full advantage of the life that you're given. You want to do everything and anything that you can. And so it induces anxiety in us. And we want to maximize our lives. This is from a non-believing perspective. But even from a believer's perspective. Why is it that many of us as believers, as people of faith and iman, why do we, why does death induce anxiety and stress and fear in us? The reason is because we know that with death and the hereafter, life after death, there is accountability. There is question and answer. We move on to the hereafter, there is accountability. God is going to hold us accountable. God is going to question us about our time in this life. And so we begin to fear our shortcomings and we begin to ask ourselves, am I ready? Am I ready for death? If death were to come my way, am I ready to leave this life and go to the hereafter? And so many of us, we fear death because we're not prepared. Because we feel that we are not ready to live, to leave this life and move on to the hereafter and to the next life. Yet despite this fear and anxiety that is related to death, our traditions, they emphasize that we should always remember death. The Holy Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa alihi wa sallam He says, أَكْثِرُوا مِنْ ذِكْرِ هَادِمِ اللَّذَّاتِ أَكْثِرُوا مِنْ ذِكْرِ هَادِمِ اللَّذَّاتِ He tells his companions, frequently remember هَادِمُ اللَّذَّاتِ هَادِمُ اللَّذَّاتِ literally translates to the demolisher of desires. His companions told him, Ya Rasulullah, what is the demolisher of desires, Hadimul Ladhat? He said, Hadimul Ladhat is death. It demolishes our desires, right? When we think about death. Because it puts an end to our life. It puts an end to the pleasures and the happiness that we may have in this life. But the Prophet says, we should often think about death. Remember death. Don't ignore it. Now, a question comes up. And that is, that isn't the Islamic religion and its teachings supposed to instill in us a sense of peace and serenity? Isn't the Quran, the prophetic teachings, the acts of worship that we do, the dua, the supplication, the seeking forgiveness, isn't all of that supposed to make me at ease? Make my heart and mind at ease? 
So doesn't it defeat the purpose if we're always thinking about death and it's always inducing in us stress and anxiety? Doesn't that defeat the purpose of religion and its objectives in bringing about calmness of mind and spirit? To answer this, we have to understand why we fear death. Why is it that we fear death? And there are two main reasons. One is when we are ignorant of death. Imam Ali السلام, says, People, they fear that which they are ignorant of. Look at our lives. If there is something that we don't understand, if there is something that we are ignorant of, oftentimes we might be afraid of that thing. A person, we don't know. That person, we might be afraid of them until we get to know them and we build trust, right? Once we get to know them, once we recognize them, then that fear slowly dissolves. Why? Because now you know that person. That person is no longer a stranger. Ignorance causes us to fear things that we are unaware of. This is one reason. And the second reason goes back to a point that I made earlier, and that is we fear death when we are not prepared for death. So it's important for us to consider these two things. What is death? To understand the nature and the essence of death. And number two, when it comes to preparing for death, what can we do? Number one, when it comes to understanding death, we should realize that death is a natural part of our lives. It's natural. As I mentioned, death is something that everyone faces. There are no exceptions. God tells the Prophet, Even you, Ya Rasulullah. The Messenger of God, the greatest of creation, God tells him, One day you will pass along to the hereafter, and everyone else will also die. In another verse, God says, God tells the Prophet, and this is a lesson for us. God is speaking, addressing the Prophet, but the lesson is to those around the Prophet who will hear from him. God says that we never gave eternity, immor uh, 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 immortality to anyone who came before you. Including you, Ya Rasulullah. If you die and those who came before you died, do those around you expect that they will live eternally? Even Prophet Jesus. From the Islamic perspective, we believe that Prophet Jesus, Isa alayhi salam, he did not die, he was not killed on the cross, that God raised him to the heavens. Even Jesus will descend once again. He will come back and he will leave this world. He will die and he will pass on to the hereafter. Even the angel of death himself, Israel whose job it is to take everyone's life. That's his job. That's what he does for a living. The hadith says, that after Israel takes the last soul, 
imagine. A time will come where everyone who is alive leaves this world. There is no longer anyone living. That last person who Israel takes his soul, the tradition says afterwards, the angel of death, he comes and he stands before God. And he knows now it's his turn. How many billions of souls has he taken? Now it's his turn. And at that point, God takes the soul of the angel of death. And then God pronounces, To who does the kingdom belong to today? Where are the kings and where are the queens? Where are the empires and where are the nations and where are the armies and where are the resources and where are the billionaires and the millionaires? Where are the successful people in the world? God says, to who does the kingdom belong to today? And then God answers this question. He says, It belongs only to God the Almighty. Death is natural. It's a natural part of our lives. We will all experience it sooner or later. But we have to understand that death is a station in our journeys. It is a transition point. This is how we should understand death. It's a transition point. And afterwards, we transition through death from this life to the permanent life. To the permanent life. God considers the hereafter. The hereafter is the real, is the permanent life. This is not the real life. This is not the permanent life. This is a temporary time for us. The real life, the real abode, the permanent abode is the hereafter. So death is a transition point. You've seen sometimes when you travel, if you travel, you know, if you take a transatlantic flight, if you're going, for instance, to, to the Middle East or East Asia, oftentimes you'll have to stop somewhere and make a connection, right? You connect at a particular point. Sometimes the connection is one hour, Sometimes it's two hours, sometimes it's five hours, sometimes it's 24 hours, more or less. You don't stay in that transition point forever, right? It's a transition point. Even if you stay, even if your transition, your transit is for a long time, even if you stay for a while. Have you seen that film with Tom Hanks, The Terminal? Seen the film, The Terminal, where Tom Hanks gets stuck in uh, the terminal in New York, and he basically lives there for a while. Even Tom Hanks in the terminal, he ends up leaving the terminal, right? Sorry if I messed up the plot for you. Even he ends up leaving. It's a transition point, it's a transit point. Death is a transit point from this life to the hereafter, from the temporary life to the permanent life and the, the permanent abode. 
and we should understand death as a journey. It is a journey back to our Lord. This is why we say, inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi raji'un. Oftentimes we use this phrase in the context of death. If we hear about someone who has passed away, someone who has died, this is oftentimes the context in which we say, inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi raji'un. Reminding us that our origin is from God, we came from God into this world, and to God we will return. Our destination is also God. So we understand that death is a journey back to our Lord. And this helps us with the second issue, and that is preparedness for death. If we understand death to be a journey, then just like any other journey we take, it requires preparation. When you decide that you want to travel, you want to go on a journey, there are two important things that you need to decide. Number one, you decide where am I going, right? We don't usually just go to the airport and buy the first ticket to wherever. That only happens in movies, right? We plan ahead of time. We decide where do I want to go? Where do I want to visit? Once we make that decision, where I want to visit, the second decision that we have to, to, to make is what am I going to take with me? Am I going somewhere warm? Am I going somewhere cold? Am I going in the north, in the south? Am I going for a short period? Am I going for a long period? Making that decision helps me then prepare what I'm going to take with me. If you're going somewhere warm, you're not going to take a jacket or a, a coat with you, right? You're not going to take boots with you. Does it make sense? If you're going somewhere cold, you're not going to go in slippers and a sandal. You're going to prepare based on where it is that you are going. Likewise, when it comes to our journey to the hereafter, we have to make these two decisions. Where am I going and what am I going to take with me? And it's up to us to decide. It's up to us to decide, where do I want to go? There's two main destinations in the hereafter. It's not a hard choice. Two main destinations, but I decide which destination do I want to go. I remember reading a story of a man who was an architect and a home builder. He spent his life, decades, building homes, building various homes. And so ha he had reached, you know, old age, and he decided that he wanted to retire from work. He had promised his lovely wife that he would retire and together they would go and they would travel the world and see the world. So he had made the decision to retire. So he went to his boss, told him, listen boss, I'm ready to retire. I've been working for decades and I'm tired of working. I want to go and I want to travel the world, see the world. I'm done working. So his boss thanked him. He told him, you know, I appreciate your decades of work. You've done a great job. You've been a pleasure to work with. But before you retire, before you go, I just have one final favor to ask of you. Just one final project. Told him, yeah, what is it? said, I just want you to build me one more home. The man was kind of reluctant. He was ready 
to go home quickly, pack his bags, and go and travel the world. So he was reluctant, but because he worked with this boss for a long time, said, okay, I'll do this final project. So he set off on building this final project, a home. But because his mind was elsewhere, he was thinking of the Maldives, and he was thinking of the Bahamas and everywhere else. He didn't put the time and the effort that he would have done otherwise on any one of his other projects. He wanted to get the project done very quickly so he can move on. So he used whatever resources he had at his disposal. He brought a team quickly together and they just put the house together. And finally, he, the day came when the house was done. He came to his boss and he said, listen, the house is done. This final project is done. Can I go now? You're going to let me go? His boss told him, yes. But give me your hand. Stretched out his hand. Boss took a pair of keys and he put them in his hand and he told him, this final project that you built, this is a gift, a retirement gift from me to you. Now had this architect known before that this would have been his home, he probably would have taken his time he probably would have built something really nice. The decision is ours, brothers and sisters. Where do I want to go? And what do I want to build for myself where I go? The Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa alihi wa sallam, Allahumma salli He says, Ad-dunya mazra'atul akhirah. Very beautiful. He says, this life, is a plantation for the next life. It's like a piece of farm. God, with every one of us who comes into this life, he gives us a plot of land and he gives us the tools in order to farm, to plant that plot of land. It's up to us to decide how much effort we want to put. Sometimes there are some farmers who get up early in the morning, they get up even before the sun rises, and they quickly get to work. And they work hard all day until the end of the day. And on the other hand, there are some farmers who make sure that they sleep in every morning. They take their time when they get up. They slowly prepare their brunch. Afterwards, they check their Twitter and their Instagram and their Facebook. Afterwards, they make a few calls here and there. Afterwards, they watch a little bit of TV. Then they go out onto their field and reluctantly, they plow a little here and there. They throw a few seeds here and there. They take the hose and they water here and there. Both of them are farmers. Both of them have a plot of land. Both of them have tools and resources to plant. But there's going to be a difference between the two. In the case of the first one, when it comes time to sow the harvest, he's going to have all types of fruits and vegetables at his disposal. 
whereas the second farmer is going to have to deal with a bunch of weeds. We reap what we sow. The Prophet says, "Adunya mazra'atul akhirah." Whatever efforts that you put into this life, for the hereafter, you will you will see the results of your efforts. It's up to us to decide. Remembering death is a reality check for us, dear friends, dear brothers and sisters. It keeps us awake. It keeps us alive. It keeps us mindful of our responsibilities. It's sort of like when you're driving on the highway. You've seen on the highway, on the sides of the highway, the far left and the far right, all the way at the end, there are rumble strips. Have you noticed? Sometimes you're driving. Why are there rumble strips at the sides of the highway? Because God forbid if you're driving and you fall asleep and you slowly swerve close to the wall, the rumble strip will do what? It'll shake you, right? Have you seen how when you drive on a rumble strip, it shakes the whole car. It wakes you up again so that, God forbid, you don't get into an accident. You don't hit the wall. Remembering death is like the rumble strips on a highway. It shakes us. It wakes us up. It keeps us from being heedless and ignorant of our priorities. It keeps us from falling into the trap of being enamored and focusing entirely on this life at the expense of the hereafter. Imam Ali alayhi salam, he says, Sharrun nas, he identifies the worst of people. He says, Sharrun nas man ba'a akhiratahu bidunya. The worst of people is the one who sells his or her hereafter for this life. They make the worst deal. Sometimes you'll notice maybe in life, you make a business transaction and you realize that you were juked, that you were taken advantage of. You paid too much for an item. You buy an item and then you notice this exact item somewhere else is being sold for 50% of that price. You realize that you've made a bad deal, right? Imam Ali says there are some who make the worst deal they sell their hereafter for this life. They sell that which is permanent for that which is temporary and that which is transient. And he says there are even worse people and they are those who sell their hereafter for the life of someone else, not their life. For the life of someone else. When we allow others to use us in a way that is disobeying God. Sometimes, God forbid, you disobey God. You do wrong at the expense of the hereafter in this life. Sometimes we do wrong for others. They benefit and we are harmed. So when we frequently remember death, this is a reality check for us, brothers and sisters. It reminds us of our priorities, of what is important in our lives. We don't want to focus solely on this life at the expense of the hereafter. Focusing solely on this life at the expense of the hereafter is like someone who travels for work or travels for vacation. You travel for a short time, right? You're going on vacation. You're spending a week at a particular place and you're staying at a hotel. 
Imagine you go to this place, you get to your hotel, and you're staying there for a week, and suddenly you decide that you're going to the store, to the furniture store, to Ikea. You guys have Ikea here? Of course. You go to Ikea and you decide that you want to buy furniture for this hotel room. You go and you buy a nice bed, you buy nice decorations, you buy new appliances, and you start to gather them, collect them all in this hotel room. It doesn't make sense. If someone sees you, they'll say you're crazy. This is a hotel room. You're staying here for temporarily. Why are you spending all this time and effort building something that is temporary, furnishing something that is temporary? Spend that time on your permanent home. Spend that money that you have furnishing your permanent home, not something that is temporary. Similarly, we have to realize that we have a responsibility to work towards furnishing our permanent homes in the hereafter. That doesn't mean that we should not work for this life. The hadith says, Work for this life as though you are guaranteed to live forever. If you're guaranteed to live forever, you're going to take care of yourself in this life, right? You're going to make lots of investments. But the hadith also says, But work for your hereafter as though you will die tomorrow, as though today is your last day. Take advantage of this life, work for this life, but don't forget the hereafter. Don't forget to build your permanent home, your permanent abode. Today we live in a world of investments. People engage in short-term investments, in long-term investments. We have to be able to invest in this life and more importantly to invest in the hereafter. We know that at the time of death, usually one of the questions that people ask is, what did so-and-so leave behind? Right? The heirs, they mourn for our death. But then afterwards, they say, what did my parents leave behind for me? What's my share of the inheritance? Or we ask about others. What did they leave behind for their nephews and their nieces and their children and their grandchildren? This is the question that we ask. What does the one who has died, what has he or she left behind? The angel asks a very different question. They say, what has he or she brought forth? What have we brought forth? This is why the Quran, it emphasizes on preparing for the hereafter. The traditions, they emphasize on preparing for the hereafter. Our Holy Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa alihi wa sallam, he says each and every one of us has three friends. Three friends. And their level of loyalty differs. They're not all the same when it comes to their loyalty to us. He says, one friend, their loyalty is with you during your life. They take care of you every single day that you are alive. And they stay with you and they're there for you and they come to your assistance and your aid. And they continue to do so all the way until you take your final breath. At that moment, their loyalty ends. The Prophet says, this first friend is your wealth and your possessions. 
when I have money in my account, when I have my credit card, when I have my investments, when I have my properties, they take care of me. I spend left and right. I need to buy something, my money is at my disposal. I use my money and I buy whatever it is that I want. But the loyalty of my wealth remains until my final moment. As soon as I take that last breath, khalas, I have no control over my wealth anymore. It can't help me anymore. It doesn't help me. It might help me with securing a grave for me. It might help me with securing my kafan, my shroud. But otherwise, it doesn't help me anymore. It goes to others. It's under the control of others. Its loyalty ends with my death. The Prophet says that the second friend has a little bit more loyalty. They stay with you and they take care of you during your life. And after your death, they take care of you all the way until you are buried. And that is your family and friends. We pass away. Our family, our friends, they mourn for us. They cry for us. They wash our bodies. They shroud us. They prepare our burial. They participate in our burial. They pray over our bodies. They carry our janazah. And then they place us into the dirt. And they put the dirt on top of us. And some of them might stick around for a little bit and they recite Quran, they recite Surah Yasin. They might remember us every once in a while. But afterwards, after my burial is done, everyone goes home. Even your family and friends. They have their lives. They have to get on with their lives. So they go. This is the second friend. Their loyalty is a step above that of the first. Then there is the third friend. The Prophet says this friend stays with you throughout your life and after your death and stays with you in your grave and all the way until you are resurrected and stands with you until your final judgment. And this is our deeds, our actions. The good and the bad. They stay with us. They stay with us even after our death. The traditions tell us it is our prayers and our kind acts and our charity that brings us comfort when we are in our graves. That when we are resurrected and we stand before the ultimate judge, the judge of all judges, it is our good deeds, it is our good interactions, it is our kindness, our generosity, our goodness, that comes to our assistance, that stands behind us, that has our backs. My prayers and my good acts and my dua and my Quranic recitation and my charity, it continues holding my hand all the way until I arrive at the gates of paradise. And then they tell me, go, enter. Enter it in peace. And the same goes for my wrong acts. My wrong acts are loyal too. They stick around as well. So let us invest in the hereafter, brothers and sisters. Work for the hereafter. Build the hereafter. Build that permanent abode that you see yourself living in. Furnish it 
decorate it with your good acts. Furnish it with acts of charity. The Quran says that the best of acts that we can perform are what is known as al-baqiyatu salihat. Those things that outlive us. We live here for several decades, we're gone. But there are some acts, good acts, that we can do that will outlive us. They will live for generations and generations and generations after we are long gone. We can build a legacy for ourselves through the acts that we do. Think long term. How can I contribute to my society in a way that will help not just those who are immediately around me, but generations to come? If I have a mosque, if I have an Islamic center, if I have a charity, if there is a hospital, if there is an orphanage, if there is a school, something that I can contribute to that will outlive me, then this will benefit me even after I'm gone. God continues to reward me for this long-term investment. Am I engaging in long-term investments? What can I do to build my hereafter? Dear friends, those who prepare for death and they prepare for the hereafter, they have nothing to fear. The hadith says that those who are prepared, death for them is an act of liberation. How is it that Amir al-Mu'mineen when he is struck on his head with the sword, how is it that he calls out, he says, Fustu wa rabbil Kaaba. By the Lord of the Kaaba, I am successful. This is his moment of death. But why does he call out and say, I am successful? Because he was prepared. He was prepared for this moment. He had prepared for his hereafter. How is it that Imam Hussein and his family members and his companions, how is it? that they expressed resolve and commitment and determination when they stood on the battlefield. They knew for sure. There was no doubt in their minds that on the day of Ashura, that death for them was certain. There was no doubt. They knew they would not make it. But how is it that they were able to show determination in the face of death? Because they had prepared. How is it that Al-Qasim, the son of Imam Al-Hassan The tradition says that he was a young man, maybe 12, 13, 14 years old. That he sees his family members. They go out one by one onto the battlefield to fight for the cause of Aba Abdullah al-Hussein. Al-Qasim, this young man, he stands up. He knows that now, this is his time. He stands up and he proceeds towards his uncle, Aba Abdullah. Imam Hussein sees Al-Qasim coming to him from far. He knows why Al-Qasim is coming. He approaches his uncle. He tells him, my dear uncle, Aba Abdullah, I have come to seek permission from you to go out onto the battlefield. Imam Hussein, he listens to his nephew. 
As soon as he hears these words, he breaks down in tears. He begins to weep, he begins to cry. He tells him, my beloved Qasim, you, how can I let you go forward onto the battlefield? My beloved Qasim, you are my reminder of my beloved brother Al-Hasan. Every time I miss my brother Al-Hasan, I would look at you, Qasim. You would remind me of his presence. How is it that I can allow you to go out onto the battlefield now? Al-Qasim, he insists, he tells him, My uncle Aba Abdullah, allow me, give me permission to go out onto the battlefield and to die for your cause. Aba Abdullah, he takes Al-Hasan close by. He takes Al-Qasim close by. He tells him, Al-Qasim, you know that you go out onto the battlefield and that you will be killed? He said, yes. He told him, let me ask you, my dear nephew, what do you think of death? How is death for you? He tells him, my beloved uncle, Aba Abdullah, al-maut ahla min al-asal. For me, death fighting alongside you and for your cause is sweeter than honey. It's sweeter than honey. I will go out and I will stand honorably and I will defend the right cause and then after that I will meet my grandfather Rasulullah. I will meet my great grandfather Rasulullah. I will meet my grandfather Amirul Mu'mineen. I will meet my grandmother Fatima Zahra. And I will meet my father Al-Imam Al-Hassan. At this moment, Imam Hussein, he cannot hold back his tears. He is reluctant. He cannot allow Al-Qasim. He is so young. He still has his entire life ahead of him. He tells him, my dear Qasim, I cannot give you permission to go out. I apologize to you. Al-Qasim turns around. He is hurt. He wants to go out. He turns around in disappointment. He walks away slowly. Suddenly he stops in his tracks and he remembers. He remembers that his father, Al-Imam Al-Hasan, had given him a message. He told him during his final moments, he told him, Al-Qasim, take this message with you. And when you see your uncle Aba Abdullah all alone, deliver this message from me to him. Al-Qasim goes back to his uncle. He tells him, I uncle Aba Abdullah, I have a promise that I made to my father, a message to deliver to you that my father said, when you see your uncle Aba Abdullah all alone, Tell him that my father commanded me. He told me, my dear son, don't leave your uncle all alone. Support him with every breath that you have and every ounce of energy that you have. When Imam Hussein heard the name of his brother Al-Hasan, he turned to Al-Qasim and he embraced him closely. He then took the shield and he placed it on Al-Qasim. He then took the sword of Al-Imam Al-Hasan and he gave it to Al-Qasim. He embraced him close and he told him, my dear nephew, go out. Al-Qasim, this young man goes out so bravely. This is the grandson of Ali ibn Abi Talib. This is the son of Al-Imam Al-Hasan. He is the brave among those who are brave. 
he goes out so bravely carrying his sword and he begins to fight with the enemies one by one. The tradition says that as he was fighting the enemies, suddenly one of his sandals, it snapped. Imam Al-Qasim -Salam, the son of Imam Al-Hasan, he bent down in order to fix his sandal, in order to fix his shoe, one of the enemies. He says, I took that opportunity and I made a vow and a promise that while Al-Qasim is in this state, then I will bereave his mother, I will take his life. And so he runs up to him and he strikes Al-Qasim on his head. Al-Qasim falls to the ground. He calls out, Ya Ammah, Ya Aba Abdullah, Adrikni, my beloved uncle Aba Abdullah, I have fallen, come to me. Imam Hussein rushes out to Al-Qasim. He sits down by him, he places his head on his lap. He tells him, my dear nephew Qasim, I am sorry that I am not able to assist you at this time. I am sorry that I am not able to come to your rescue. After a few moments, Imam Hussein alayhi salam, he gets up and he walks back to the camp. He turns to Bani Hashim and he tells them, Oh Bani Hashim, go and carry the body of your brother Al-Qasim. Inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi raji'oon. Wa sa'alamu al-ladheena zalamu ayyamun qalabiyan qalibun. Wal-aqibatu lil-muttaqeen. صلى الله وسلم عليك يا سيدي ويا مولاي يا أبا عبد الله صلى الله وسلم عليك وعلى الأرواح التي حلت بفنائك عليكم مني جميعا سلام الله أبدا ما بقيت وبقي الليل والنهار ولا جعله الله آخر العهد مني لزيارتكم السلام على الحسين وعلى علي بن الحسين وعلى أولاد الحسين وعلى أصحاب الحسين جميعا ورحمة الله وبركاته and for the soul of all of the mu'mineen and mu'minat and especially for the souls of the shuhada of the bombing that took place in Afghanistan and killed many of the devotees and the loyal followers of the Ahlul Bayt alayhim as-salam there who were participating in the majalis of Aba Abdullah for their souls and for the souls of all of the shuhada. We recite Surah Al-Fatiha ma'as-salat ala Muhammadin wa Ali Muhammad.